listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 6, verses 5 through 22. In honor of Eugene Peterson, who passed away earlier this week, I will be reading from the message. He's the one who put the message together. Noah and his sons. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. God said, I'll get rid of my ruined creation, make a clean sweep, people, animals, snakes and bugs, birds, the works. I'm sorry I made them. But Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. This is the story of Noah. Noah was a good man, a man of integrity in his community. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. As far as God was concerned, the earth had become a sewer. There was violence everywhere. God took one look and saw how bad it was. Everyone corrupt and corrupting. Life itself corrupt to the core. God said to Noah, it's all over. It's the end of the human race. The violence is everywhere. I'm making a clean sweep. Build yourself a ship from teakwood. Make rooms in it. Coat it with pitch inside and out. Make it 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Build a roof for it and put in a window 18 inches from the top. Put in a door on the side of the ship and make three decks, lower, middle, and upper. I'm going to bring a flood on the earth that will destroy everything alive under heaven. Total destruction. But I'm going to establish a covenant with you. You'll board the ship and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives will come on board with you. You are also to take two of each living creature, a male and a female, on board the ship to preserve their lives with you. Two of every species of bird, mammal, and reptile. Two of everything so as to preserve their lives along with yours. Also get all the food you'll need and store it up for you and them. Noah did everything God commanded him to do. Good morning again, everyone. So we're looking at the story of Noah's Ark today, or as I have come to call it, that one time God got mad and killed everybody. And like, I'm kind of joking with that, but not really. This is a messed up story. We're so familiar with it that a lot of us are probably desensitized to it, but by any objective measure, This is a story about genocide on a global scale. And we're only six chapters into the Bible. 
Six chapters in, and God has already decided to kill everybody. To put that into perspective, I have a pew Bible up here. This is 1,009 pages long. I didn't have to count. They're printed on here. 1,009 pages. And this story comes to us on page five. (laughs) It's funny, but it's also kind of unsettling. In fact, if if this story doesn't bother you on at least some level... You and I should probably have a talk, because as a, follower, uh, as a follower of Jesus, this story bothers me. This story raises some serious questions about the character and the temperament of the God we follow, of the God revealed in Scripture, and it's troubling, to say the least. Another kind of messed up thing about this story, at least for me, is that we teach it to little kids. I learned the story of Noah's Ark at a really young age. I don't know if uh, probably many of you it's the same, but this is really not a story for children. Our son Zeke turned one about a month ago, um, and back when he was first dedicated at our old church in California, uh, he received the Frolic First Bible, which I have a picture of for you. It's an adorable Bible for babies. It's really cute. In fact, if you're in the market for a baby Bible, this is one I'd highly recommend, and I'm not getting paid to say that. But even this adorable little toddler Bible gets into the action and gives us a version of this story. Um, Here's a picture of it. Got all the cute little smiling, happy faces and animals. There's a, is there a rainbow? Yeah, there's a rainbow. Oh, it's so cute. And I I know the, the words are way too small up there to read, so let me read it to you. This is the Noah story from the Frolic First Bible. God told Noah... Build a boat and fill it with animals. So Noah did. Animals came aboard two by two, from alligators to zebras. Rain came down, the boat floated, water covered the whole earth. When the land dried, God made a rainbow in the sky. God took care of Noah, his family, and all the animals. God takes care of you and your family. What a nice story. It left out some details, like the part where if you're not in Noah's family, God drowns you without mercy, but, you know, just a minor detail. But that's what we do with stories like these, right? We strip them of all the problematic, violent stuff. We put a rainbow in the sky, and we teach it to kids. We give, we give it a moral, you know, some kind of easy takeaway that ignores all the problematic bits. God keeps his promises or God will take care of you and your family, and we just skip over the other stuff. And can I just say, I absolutely love this guy. Get a circle there. Let's get a little bit closer look. This guy right here is my favorite. Look at that expression. (laughs) This guy knows what's going on. Um, You've got all these other happy, smiling faces on top of the ark, and then there's just this one guy who looks mortified. Now, in my imagination, I like to pretend that this picture was drawn by, like, a really subversive children's Bible artist. It probably wasn't, but that's that's how I like to imagine it. Someone someone who did this knew exactly what they were doing. Anyway, the point is that this is not a story for kids. And I'm not really interested in the sanitized, moralistic version of this story that we teach children. But I am really curious about the violent problematic version that we find in our Bibles. So let's dive in. 
We've been walking through Genesis now for a little over a month, and last week we looked at the stories leading up to this one. In fact, um, if you missed last week's sermon, I'd encourage you to go on our church website and listen, because there's some really important context there for this story. By this point in the book of Genesis, all hell is breaking loose on earth, literally. All the boundaries God established to allow life on earth to thrive are being torn apart by violence. People are killing each other, violating the boundary between life and death. Women have had their dignity stripped away and are being dominated by violent men. People are even having sex with angels in the opening verses of Genesis 6, which really gets at the boundary between heaven and earth falling apart. Our violence is essentially unmaking the world at this point. And the one remaining boundary, the one thing that's still there from the creation story, is between the sky and the seas. Early on in Genesis, we're told that God separated the waters above the earth from the waters on the earth. And the flood is essentially the undoing of that boundary. In fact, there's some interpreters who argue that God doesn't really send the flood. Human beings are the ones tearing down these boundaries. And so God doesn't really need to send the flood. God just needs to stop holding things together. All this time, God has been sustaining creation, doing all that he can to keep the roof from caving in. But when human beings refuse to turn from their violence and destruction, God finally reaches a breaking point and says, fine, I'll do things your way. I like that interpretation. There's an important cautionary tale there. It's unsettling, but there's something very practical and true about the idea that God will only rescue us so many times if we keep embracing violence, if we keep returning to destructive patterns and behaviors. God will eventually give us what we want, even if the results are tragic. Now, as a parent, though, that's still kind of nuts, right? Like, if my kids keep playing by a busy intersection after I've repeatedly told them not to, I'm not going to give up and just throw them in front of oncoming traffic. But that's where I think a little historical context can maybe help us out with this one. So, there were a lot of flood stories in the ancient world. Almost every ancient civilization had a story like this, a story about a worldwide flood, and these stories often tried to explain why God or the gods would allow such a calamity to befall the earth. And the popular version of the flood story back when Noah's Ark was first being told was a story of a man named Utnapishtim, or as the Babylonians called him, Atrahasis. I don't know why they changed his name to Atrahasis. Maybe the Babylonians thought Utnapishtim was too hard to say, so they went with Atrahasis, which just rolls right off the tongue. But anyway, Utnapishtim's story was first written down in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a pretty famous old story that was written around the year 3000 BC. For comparison, the book of Genesis was probably put in its final written form some 2,400 years later in the 6th century B.C. 
But the popular version of this story when Genesis was written was the story of Utnapishtim. Everyone knew about Utnapishtim. He was minding his business one day when a god named Enki came to him and told him to build a boat. And so Utnapishtim did. He built a boat using the exact measurements given to him by Enki. And then Enki brought animals two by two to the boat and they boarded. And then Utnapishtim and his family got on board and Enki closed up the door and sealed it. And then the rains came. Now in this version of the story, it only rained for a week. In the Genesis version, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, which we'll talk about in a bit. But when the rain stopped, Utnapishtim released three birds, a crow, a dove, and a sparrow. Now in this version of the story, it's the crow that comes back with a branch in its beak, which leads Utnapishtim and the boat to dry land. Now if you paid attention in Sunday school, that story probably sounds familiar. You didn't know you knew so much about the epic of Gilgamesh, did you? And we've seen this sort of thing before in the book of Genesis. This is nothing new or out of the ordinary. The Israelites loved to do this. They loved to take the popular stories of their day, the stories that were told by the empires like Assyria and Babylon that were always oppressing them, and they would take these stories and put their own spin on it. Resist the story of the empire by telling a different story of their own that revealed something about their God. It's not the similarities between Noah and Utnapishtim that matters. It's the differences. The differences are everything, and they all have to do with God. Why did God send the flood? Well, if you'd have asked the Babylonian that, you know, 2,500 years ago, they'd have told you that the, the flood was sent by the vengeful god Enlil. Enlil was nasty. Enlil hated human beings because we're too noisy. He would complain that the people on earth made so much noise he couldn't get to sleep. And so Enlil sent plagues and famines and finally a flood to wipe out the human race once and for all. Whatever it takes to get a little rest, right? Which as the parent of a three-year-old and a one-year-old, I can kind of relate to. <clears throat> but then there was this other god, Enki, who didn't like Enlil. They didn't get along. In fact, they were rivals. And it was Enki who warned Utnapishtim about the flood and told him to build the ark, to kind of stick it to Enlil. That's the way it worked in the ancient world. The gods were vengeful and manipulative. Human beings didn't have a relationship with the gods so much as they were the pawns of the gods. Human beings were meaningless playthings thrown away in a rivalry between competing deities. That's the way the ancient world saw it. But Israel's God is different. Israel's God, especially in the Noah story, represents a giant leap forward in human understanding of God. Here we have a God who doesn't flood the earth to eliminate life, but to preserve it. As violent and problematic as we may find this story today, the flood in Genesis is actually a critique of human violence. Violence is mentioned a lot, and it's being condemned. The kind of violence that the Israelites suffered at the hands of Babylon. The flood is God's judgment of human violence. 
It's God's way of hitting the reset button on creation, salvaging whatever God can and starting over with Noah before it's too late. And the flood wrecks God. It breaks God's heart. The text tells us that God was sorry he had made human beings and it pained his heart. That word translated pained or grieved is the same word used to describe the pains a mother feels in labor. It also describes the pain of a parent who's lost a child. The decision to flood the earth is not something God takes lightly. It's a decision made out of desperation, and it breaks God's heart. And as troubling as I find this story, and as troubling as many of us might find this story today, at the time it was written, this idea of a God who cares this much about humanity was radical. No one was thinking about God in this way. And of course there's more to the story. There's always more to the story. In our sermon talk back last, uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how a lot of these stories in the Old Testament work kind of like an onion. There's the version of the story you see on the surface, a story about God sending a flood and telling Noah to build a boat. But then you can peel back the layers of the story and discover layer upon layer of meanings and metaphor and interpretation. In a very real sense, the flood story is the story of Israel. The flood parallels their experience, the experience of the Jewish people being exiled into Babylon. This is going to get into some background stuff, but hopefully it works. (laughs) Way back at the beginning of this preaching series, we talked about how the book of Genesis was written probably while the Jews were exiled in Babylon. The Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem and destroyed everything. They destroyed the temple, they massacred the people, and then they took the handful of survivors and carted them off to Babylon as captives. That's the context that this story was written down in. The surviving Jews decided to take these old stories that had been passed down orally from generation to generation and write them down to preserve them. And the destruction of Jerusalem was a flood-like event. Everything was destroyed. All was lost. And for that small remnant of Jews who survived, the story of Noah on the ark, floating at sea, looking for land, waiting for God to remember him, must have felt familiar. The prayer the exiles returned to time and time again was, remember us, Lord. Remember the covenant you made with your people, God. Remember the faithfulness of our ancestors. Remember us. Deliver us. The rains fell for 40 days and 40 nights, which is a callback to the very beginning of Israel's story. When Moses led the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt and they wandered in the desert for 40 years, searching for a home, waiting for God to remember them. You can really see some of this uh, parallel in chapter 7. The Noah story goes on for a few chapters, but I'm just going to read chapter 7, starting in verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. And the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
The waters swelled and increased greatly. The ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Can you feel the desperation in that description? Can you feel the sense of hopelessness? This story is being told by a people who are drowning. They're fighting to survive, struggling to keep their heads around water, or above water, struggling to not be consumed by the violent, destructive forces swirling all around them. But then in chapter 8, we find this. But God remembered Noah. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. There is hope in this story. The hope that God will remember his people. The hope that no matter how bad things get and no matter how far we've fallen, when the waves swirl around us and come crashing down, God is still with us. God remembers us. And God will deliver us. Maybe you feel like you're drowning. It could be because of mistakes you've made in the past. Or maybe you're being crushed by someone who wants to do you harm. A lot of times we don't even know where the floods of this life come from. They just come. And when they do, our hope is found in the promise that God will remember us. No matter what demons lie in your past, no matter what trials you're going through right now, God remembers you. God is still with you. And God will deliver you. That's the hope of the Noah story. That's the light in this otherwise very dark tale. That's the hope that brought the Israelites through decades of suffering in Babylon. And that's the hope that will bring you through whatever trials and tribulations this life is throwing your way. God will remember you. Let's pray. God, sometimes it feels like we're drowning. The waves are swirling around us, and we're desperate to keep our head above the water. And our prayer in those times, Lord, is that you will remember us like you did Noah. That you will deliver us, Lord, from the floods of this life. We praise you for the times you've delivered us in the past, and we ask for the faith place our hope in you for the future. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.